Our topic this week from the book of Genesis, chapter 5, as well as the book of Jude. We'll be looking at most of the book of Jude, not every verse, but most of the chapter, um, and on the topic of Enoch. So Enoch's mentioned in Genesis 5, verse 18, Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. Right now, if I would have asked you before this slide, uh, you know, a trivia question, who has ever heard of Enoch? Many people who've read the Bible are familiar with Enoch. But then if I would ask also a whole group of people who are familiar with the Bible, what is Enoch's father's name? Very few would be able to get that in a trivia question. So next time you're playing Bible trivia, maybe add that question in there. That'd be a good, uh, good question. Because he is mentioned there very clearly. So Jared, Jared lived 162 years when he had Enoch. Now, we don't know if he had any children prior to Enoch or if Enoch was his firstborn, but uh, he was 162. And then he lived another, after he begot Enoch, another 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So Enoch had hundreds of brothers and sisters. And again, I don't know about you, but when I think of Enoch, I don't necessarily think of him having a whole bunch of brothers and sisters. I think of, you know, the Bible account regarding him, and that's about it. But he, you know, when, when you see him in the setting of the Bible, that he had mother and a father and, and a whole bunch of brothers and sisters, hundreds of them, uh, and how they must have felt when, when the Bible account takes place regarding him. All the days of Jared were 962 years and he died, almost a thousand years. Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. So again, we don't know if Methuselah was uh, the firstborn of Enoch. Um, uh, Methuselah is uh, born in uh, Enoch's, well, Enoch's 65, so it is possible that Jared maybe had 100 years of children before uh, he had Enoch. And so Methuselah uh, comes along. And then Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. And again, I don't know how you picture it, but uh, usually when I think of the story of Enoch, I don't think of a whole bunch of sons and daughters there, you know, missing him uh, after he is not, as we get to here, right? So, and all the days of Enoch were 365 years. So he had, if, if Methuselah was his first child, we have 300 years of having children. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So it doesn't say that he died. It says that God took him, right? And so uh, it's understood that he went straight to heaven without seeing death. And so again, in the context of what we just read, there were a whole bunch of his children, you know, where'd he go? What, you know, and, 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 and grieving that he is no longer, at least here on earth, happy, no doubt, that uh, he is walked with God and is in heaven, but also all his brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles. Because if we look at this chart, still in chapter 5, Genesis 5, uh, going from verse 5 down to 31 and then a little to Genesis 9, we see a list of Adam's children at the lineage down to Noah. And we see before uh, Enoch, just about everyone lived 900 and more years. right? And at that point, Jared, Enoch's father, was the longest living person. And then after Enoch, we have Methuselah, 969 years, and Elimech, and then Noah, 950 years. Almost everyone lived about 900 years uh, and died, as it says, and they died. They lived another 800 years after they had their son and died. But with Enoch, it does not say they died, that he died. He was taken, walked with God, and God took him. So he only has the 365 years, throwing off the, the, uh, the average uh, lifespan in the 900s down to, uh, to 365. Now, if all of these people went straight to heaven at death, then it really wouldn't be a big deal that Enoch walked with God and God took him, right? That'd be no big deal. He could have just died. He could have had a, you know, a donkey accident and died and, you know, and then went right to heaven, right? You know, if, that's, if, if, if everyone just went, but, the, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible said, God told them, you will surely die, right? It's the devil who says, you will not surely die, right? And so all the others are waiting for the resurrection. It's Enoch who gets to go to heaven, which I think is very important and very significant because all of these people up on this list here, except Adam at the top and Noah at the bottom, were alive 
when Enoch was taken. We don't think of it that way either. That's like 10 generations, or I think it's total 10, so eight generations of people plus hundreds of thousands of people, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles related to Enoch, who were alive when he was taken. And Adam had just died maybe about 60 or so years prior to Enoch being taken. And so there might have been, you know, after Adam died, because prior to Adam dying, very few had died, right? Abel died early, uh, but if everyone's living about 900 years, and Adam's one of the first ones, then no one's really dying until Adam dies, and then even after Adam, there'd be a time period before his children start dying off, and we start to see death really taking place. Now, they saw animals die, and they saw leaves fall off trees, but to see people dying on a regular basis didn't happen for the first close to 1,000 years of Earth's history. So then when Adam and Eve die, maybe then they started to think about death. And what does happen when we die? And is this all there is? This earth and then nothing more. Is God's promise of a resurrection actually there? And again, for the understanding of the resurrection and about the resurrection and what happens when we die, we preached a whole sermon on that earlier on in Genesis. So you can go to shalomadventure.com and, and watch that on, on what happens when we die and what is... Uh, what does it mean to surely die and, and, uh, and the devil's lie that you will not surely die? So you can get more on that. But they might have been wondering, well then, is God's promise real? Is there a life after death to those that believe? Or are we all in the same boat, whether Cain or Abel, whether the righteous or the wicked? Are we all in the same boat? And so at that point in time in history, in just 60 years and out of 900 in 30 years, 60 years is really not much, right? And so 60 years after um, Adam's death, that's a very short period of time in people's minds at that time, for Enoch to go straight to heaven was a wonderful assurance and a wonderful promise that there is a God that Adam talked about. And there is a loving God who cares about us. And there is a heavens above that we can go to and be with God, that we can have a hope of a better life than just things here on this earth. Death does not have to be the eternal end if we trust in him, if we surrender our lives to him, if we present the right sacrifices, not as Cain, but as Abel, and, and receive the forgiveness of sins because of the blood of the sacrifice in our behalf, pointing forward to the Messiah, we can have everlasting life again as God originally planned for humanity. And so Enoch's resurrection at that point in time in history is very, very significant. And he's able to then, Lemech, who was alive when Enoch ascended, is able to pass it on to Noah and to Noah's children, Methuselah as well. And many of these other people were still alive when Noah was born. And all of them are able to just a list here, as well as all the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews able to testify, yes, we knew Enoch. And yes, he had an amazing walk with God. And he walked so closely with God that one time he basically just walked right into heaven. And we have not seen him since. And so then Noah is able to, able to pass that on and Noah's children able to pass that on to our day, to Abraham. And so then the genealogy in First Chronicles mentions Enoch again. Of all the hundreds of children that Jared has, Enoch is the one that's mentioned in the line of Abraham. And the same with of all the hundreds of children Enoch had, Methuselah is the one in the line of Abraham. And again, uh, many of them lived on uh, to Pass Noah and Shem and uh, able to pass on to Abraham about Enoch, second, third hand news. And then going from Yeshua backwards, we have the chronology that Yeshua the Messiah is in the line of King David and in the line of Judah and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and 
down to Methuselah and to Enoch, to Jared, and to Adam. So again, of all the hundreds of thousands of people, Enoch is the one that's mentioned. And these others in this specific line that brings about Noah, that brings about Abraham, that brings upon David, that brings about the Messiah. So why did God choose Enoch and why did God choose these for this lineage? Let's look at what the Bible has to say about Enoch. We already read what it said in Genesis. It wasn't a whole lot. He's mentioned in the book of Jude and one other place in the Bible other than those chronologies that we looked at. So let's look at what is mentioned about Enoch in Jude. It says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and that's what we just saw in those chronologies. He was the seventh one prophesied about these men also. Now, in order to know who these men also that Enoch prophesied about, we need to read more in the book of Jude. In context, in the book of Jude, who are these people that Enoch is talking about? And in understanding who Enoch is talking about, here we will understand a little bit more about Enoch himself and the prophecy that Enoch has left for us and recorded in the book of Jude. So let's go back earlier on in the book of Jude. And again, we'll read most of the book of Jude, not all of it. Let's jump to verse three. Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. So who is he talking to in the beginning there? Who is the beloved that have a common salvation with Jude? Who's he talking to? Fellow believers, exactly. So he starts off talking to fellow believers, but those, not th those are not the ones that Enoch was talking about, because then he continues on, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. So when it says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed, what have they crept into? Into the body of believers. Yes. So these are the people that we're going to see he's talking about. And so he's not talking about the world. He's not talking about the heathen. He's not talking about the atheists and agnostics. He's talking about those who are professing to believe in God and who have crept in among the believers. And then he begins to describe them. They are ungodly. They turn the grace of God into lewdness and they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, if they were denying him just flat out, oh, he doesn't exist, there is no God, there is no Messiah, then there's no way that they would have been able to creep in unnoticed. So when it's saying deny, they're not denying the existence of God and the existence of the Messiah. They are denying, as the book, uh, as it mentioned in 2 Timothy, they have a form of godliness but they are denying the power thereof. They are denying the power of God to work in their lives and to deliver them from their lewdness. Let's see what more it says about them. Verse 7, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, likewise these dreamers defile the flesh reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. They speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they are corrupt themselves. So they don't respect authority. They've crept in, regardless of who's in charge and who's leadership, and they're not willing to submit to that leadership. They creep in, they work behind the scenes, in various different ways, and they uh, defile the flesh by rejecting God's word, what God's word says on our body being the temple of God's Holy Spirit and defiling it, whether what they eat and what they drink or, or how they live or sexual immorality. They're defiling it 
and not allowing the Holy Spirit to live in them, and they speak evil of whatever they don't know. Anything that doesn't match what their preconceived ideas, doesn't match what they've learned in the past. They don't want to learn anything new. They don't want to hear anything new. They just then, if it's not matching what they think, what they know, their pet peeves, then it's evil. And speaking evil of the dignitaries, the leaders within the congregation. And again, I doubt doing it openly, otherwise they would not be able to creep in unnoticed. Nothing new under the sun. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perish in the rebellion of Korah. Now, why does he mention these three? Well, Cain was not an atheist. He believed in God, right? He brought an offering to God. He brought, built an altar, and he wanted to worship God, and he brought this offering. Now, it wasn't the offering that God said. He wanted to do it his way, but he wasn't in open denial of God. He was just denying the pattern and the way that God says to receive forgiveness through the blood of the Lamb. He wanted to do it in his own ways. And like Balaam, Balaam is mentioned in the Bible as a prophet of God. But he's willing to sell himself out and curse the people of God, just as these others speaking evil of dignitaries and of those that, of what they do not know and rejecting authority. And then Korah. Korah was Moses' cousin, a Levite among the children of God that came out of Egypt. And yet he spoke and others spoke evil of Moses and of Aaron and wanted to usurp their authority and corrupt from within. So all three of those matching what is being spoken of here. And in the verse 12, these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear. So again, if they are in your love feasts, they are in among the body of believers and they are feasting with you, then they are in among the body of believers. And that is really what the, the Bible describes as the anti-Messiah power will do, that it will set up uh, its kingdom within the temple of God, right? And we are the temple of God. The people of God are the temple of God. No, you're not that you are the temple of God. And Yeshua has the chief cornerstone and we fit stones building up the temple of God. And so it's not just some person in some place somewhere, but it's how evil influences come in among the people of God. And not just an influence, but specific doctrines and teachings and system that the devil uses to come in and corrupt God's people. And again, we see that with the disciples. Judas was in there, the son of perdition. And that is what the anti-Messiah is referred to as the son of perdition. Not on the outside, again, as some denying atheist or communist, but within. Judas was within as a son of perdition, corrupting from within, eating within, the feast within, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. What a description of these people. And then to verse 14 where Enoch's mentioned, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, the ones we were just reading about, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with myriads of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So here, Enoch's talking about the very last days, prophesying of the last days. So Jude was talking about in Jude's day, not long after the Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection. And no doubt, similar to what was a lot, uh, true in Enoch's day, or with Cain, or with Balaam, and with Korah in Moses' day, 
And so also in our day, we should not be surprised that there's nothing new under the sun. That Satan's method and plan has always been to come in and to infiltrate from within. And so we need to be on guard because Satan wants to use any one of us. He wants to come into our minds and our hearts who are already within the body of believers through temptation and get us to stumble and get us to fall, to get us to yield and to get dissatisfied and grumble and complain and doubt and, and, and bicker and argue and allow the flesh to take over and rule our lives, that our belly and our flesh and our natural desires are what rule the day and not God's word and God's spirit and God's truth. Because a judgment will come, and that's what Enoch was prophesying. A day is going to come, a judgment day is going to come. There is the promise of the resurrection, there is the promise of everlasting life, like Enoch, and there is the promise of judgment upon those who deny God and resist him. Verse 16, still in the book of Jude, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, in contrast, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Messiah Yeshua, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. And so in the last days, there would be divisions among the people of God. And we've seen that over and over again and how sad it is when there's congregational splits and people come in and, and or people from within, they become grumblers and complainers and unhappy about this or that or someone didn't look at them or someone, didn't, or someone said something that they didn't like and they didn't agree with and it didn't match their, their thinking and then split and split the whole congregation. It's very sad. I was talking with someone recently and he was boasting of how uh, the congregation he was a part of and how they had this disagreement and how he was on the right side and this other side and they were wrong and, and they battled it out and they ended up splitting and, and, uh, and their side won. There used to be about 200 members and they had like about 120 and so they got most of the people and, and their side was justified and, and won and that the, the other group they're down to almost nothing, they're almost down to 30 people. Well, I did a little calculating. I don't know how fast you can calculate. But there were about 50 or so people who just got lost between the cracks. And that is not something to rejoice about. There is no winners in that type of scenario. And that's how the devil works. And that's what the devil does. And that's not the plan of God. Because that's how he works. He gets us grumbling. He gets us unhappy. He gets us dissatisfied, discouraged, and become grumblers, complainers. And then feeding our own natural desires, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. And then speaking boldly and boastfully of ourselves and our own ideas and our own concepts and our own thinking. Thinking that we're always right. We're the smartest one in the room. Causing divisions, not having the Spirit of God. But very convincing to others because of our boastful, swelling words. I convince a whole bunch of people that that's the Spirit of God and going and following and chasing the Pied Piper. Beloved, build yourselves up on the most holy faith. Now again, he's talking in contrast to those wicked ones. Build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Messiah Yeshua unto eternal life. On some having compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments defiled by the flesh. So now he's describing the righteous. And we need to have mercy and compassion on those who are grumbling and bickering and fighting and unhappy and dissatisfied. And in by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
reaching into the fire in the pits of hell where they are caught and dragging them out, pulling them out, and hating even the garments, not allowing the sin to come upon us, going against the gates of hell and slamming against the gates of hell and delivering those who are caught up thereof and bringing them safely out of the fire. The brand plucked out of the fire, delivering God's children out of the deceptions of this world and Satan's temptations upon them and praying for one another, caring for one another, loving one another, watching out for one another, and then building each other up, not tearing each other down. Then verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory. He's talking about the coming of the Lord, coming with 10,000 of his holy ones, myriads of his holy ones. Heavenly angels, all of heaven emptied out, the Messiah coming in the glory of the Father with all of his angels with him going from one end of the earth to the other to resurrect the dead and to rise us up with him to present you faultless before the presence of the glory, of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Now, the other portion where it mentions Enoch is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, starting verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So very similar to what we read in Genesis 5, verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So he did not see death. Now, there's only one other person who's ever lived on this earth who did not see death. Elijah, Enoch, and Elijah. The only two who went straight to heaven without seeing death. And they represent, they and those that have died, they represent one portion, one group that will be alive when the Messiah comes. When Messiah went up on, with three of his disciples, on Mount Transfiguration, he saw they appeared to him Elijah and Moses. And those two represented the two groups that will be waiting for the Messiah when he comes. Elijah represented, like Enoch, those who will go to heaven without seeing death, and Moses, who had died, but is resurrected in a special resurrection that's mentioned in the Bible for him. The Lord ended with the devil, Lord rebuke you, took Moses' body up to heaven without, even after he died, before the resurrection, before the Messiah came. And Moses represents all those who die and will be resurrected at the coming of the Lord. Because as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Messiah will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Amen, amen, amen. hallelujah. Right, so there'll be two groups. And we'll meet the Lord. Those that have died, like Adam, and all the way down since then, except a few special resurrections that have taken place, but down from Adam down to the last person who dies, last martyr before, or dies naturally before the Messiah comes, who believes in the Lord, who'll be raised from the dead, and then those who are alive, like Enoch, like Elijah, who are alive and go straight to heaven without seeing death. And together, we will meet the Lord in the air. And the wicked, as we just read, when he comes with the brightness of his coming and all his heavenly angels, he will pronounce judgment upon them and he will destroy the wicked with the brightness of his coming. 
and the land will experience its rest. For a time before God creates the new heavens and the new earth. So let's look at these texts here in Hebrews chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 5 and look at them closely together and do a little comparison on them because they're very similar. So the exact matches I've marked in green and the close matches are in pink. So in Genesis, it says he was not. In Hebrews, it says and was not found. He did not see death. So was and was is a match, not and not is a match. He and and is not a match, and found is added on in the book of Hebrews. But it's implied there. And the second part in Genesis, for God took him, Hebrews, because God had taken him. So for and because are basically the same thing. God and God is a match, took and had taken is basically a very close match, and him and him is a direct match. Right? Following? Then the third part, Enoch walked with God, Hebrews. He pleased God. Enoch and he is a very close match. God and God is a direct match. Walked with him, pleased him, pleased God is not exactly the same wording and not necessarily uh, uh, interchangeable words, but here they are. Walking with God was pleasing to God. Right? So what does it mean that he walked with God? It means he pleased God. What does it mean that he pleased God? He walked with God. And so really still saying the same thing, just those words being interchanged together, having the same meaning in the writer's minds, the writer of Hebrews, uh, meaning the same thing as what was recorded in Genesis. And when it said he walked with God, it meant he pleased God. Well, what does that mean? that he pleased God, that he walked with God. Well, in order maybe to understand that, let's go back to Jude and see how the righteous are described in the book of Jude, because that's where Enoch is mentioned. So let's take a look. Jude, chapter, uh, Jude verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. And so walking with God meant not stumbling. Pleasing God meant being faultless by his power and by his grace. And so this is what, why Enoch was able to just walk with God. Because he was walking without sin. He had gained the victory to him, by him, who was able to keep him from stumbling. He was walking hand in hand with God, and God kept him from falling. God kept him from stumbling. And he was pleasing God because he was walking without fault. Is it possible to walk without fault? Is it possible to walk without stumbling? Is it possible to live a life that is not committing open, rebellious sins, disobedience against God? Well, I believe that's what it takes to be able to walk straight into heaven. It was just one sin that Adam and Eve got kicked out of heaven or out of the Garden of Eden. So do you think God's going to just allow us in? He kicked Lucifer out. And all the heavenly angels, and if he lets us out, lets us in with sin on our record, they would have a pretty good argument, wouldn't they? How dare you kick us out and you're letting them in? So is it possible? Well, God says it is to him who is able. Not in your own strength, not in my own strength, not by our will, not by our self-will, but by him who is able. Is he able? I know he is able. He is able. To carry you through. I know he is able. He is able to carry us and to walk us through. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. I think this is what it meant when Jude was talking about those and Enoch referring to those who walked according to the flesh, who deny God. They're denying that God is able to keep them from falling. 
And thus, well, you know, we try, we, we want to follow God, we want to serve God, but you know, we're human, and so we're weak, and so we're going to fall, and it's going to happen, and we're going to sin, but God loves us, and God forgives us. Have you ever heard that? Yes. In sermons, I've heard that. I've heard that so many times, if I hear it one more time, I think I'll puke. That is what those who've crept in are saying. They're denying the power of the Lord God. They have a form of godliness, but they're denying the power of God to give us victory. Denying the power of God to transform us from carnal human nature to born-again overcomers in the Lord, partakers of the divine nature, and not walking in the carnal flesh lusts of this world, but having victory through God's power. They deny they're walking according to the flesh. They're letting the flesh drive them. They're letting the carnal internal desires of the selfishness and the pride and the ego and the fears and the worries and the cares of what others are going to say and others think and this, where will this put me in position and Will I earn more? Will I earn less? Will I be known more? Will I be liked more? Will I be ridiculed and being controlled by this? Will it satisfy my dire desires and my taste buds and my urges and all moved by the flesh and not by the Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit? And that's the contrast. And that's the difference. And not only do we need to, by God's power, be presented faultless. Is he coming for a bride with, with pimples? No. Hey, a spotless bride. Not one with a stained dress, but without spot, without wrinkle. Blameless. Without fault in her mouth. Without guile in her mouth. That's the bride he's coming for. That's the bride he's waiting for. He's waiting for the bride to get, grow up. And to put away the childish things. And for the bride to embrace in heart and mind, in love, the Messiah, and prepare herself for him. Make herself ready, make herself right, so that she can present herself faultless as a virgin bride to the Messiah. That's what he's waiting for. He's not waiting for the world to get worse. He's waiting for God's people to get serious. He's waiting on God's people to believe his promises to overcome. Believe his promises to have victory. To believe his promises that all things become new. That the old nature is dead and died and buried away. And that we become new in the Messiah and alive in him. That God is able to sanctify us that you shall be holy, for he, the Lord God, is holy. That makes you holy. Claiming his promises, that he is a holy God, and that he creates a holy people for his kingdom. And not only is that the type of bride he's coming back for, but that's the type of character we need to have before we go into the grave. Nothing happens down in the grave that changes our desires and our character and our mind. It is here and now that the character needs to be changed. It is here and now that our carnal hearts and our hard hearts need to be surrendered to him, killed with him, released to him. Let him take out that heart of stone. Let him take out that carnal mind. And let him put in his heart of flesh. Let him put in, let this mind be in you, which was in Messiah Yeshua. So we walk in harmony with him, that his thoughts are our thoughts, that his desire are our desires, his mind pulsating through our flesh, his spirit living out through our hands and our feet and our mouths and our words, him working through us, him being seen in this earth, him being glorified in his children. There's no reason for us to choose to rebelliously, consciously continue ongoing 
in disobedience against God. There's no reason for it. Flesh needs to be surrendered. The flesh is weak, so kill it. Allow it to be dead in Messiah. The Spirit is willing and the Spirit is able. So let the Holy Spirit come in and change us and transform us. Now, when it does, we won't know it. We won't see it because the righteous will not be looking in the mirror all day long. John the Baptist didn't even realize that he was, had the spirit of Elijah. He said, I don't know, I don't care. Look to him, he's the one I've come to proclaim. It's about him, not about me. It won't be about us. There was a man, I heard him giving a sermon, he was talking on this topic close to 40 years ago. And he said he was preaching on God's victory and, and, uh, and the man stood up in the back and he said, I think his name was Richards. I think it was HMS Richards. He said, Brother Richards, I have not sinned in 30 years. And the preacher said, what was that, brother? And he said, I have not sinned in 30 years. And the minister said, well, that's wonderful. Why'd you have to go and blow it? <laughs> We're not going to be looking at ourselves and measuring ourselves with ourselves or comparing ourselves with others. We'll be comparing ourselves with the Lord. And we'll always see there's more room for growth. There's more room for sanctification. Plus, we'll always be tempted by the devil here on this earth. So the evil thoughts and evil desires in our, will come into our mind and our evil flesh will continually want to be resurrected and take over. And there'll be a constant battle against the flesh and against the temptations. We won't be walking around, oh, we're holy flesh, oh, we're, we're the sanctified ones, oh, we're the holy ones. We'll be wrestling by God's power. And against our past, and then we'll be bringing up our past stuff and throwing it in our face. No, I've been forgiven, I've confessed that. There'll be a constant battle against the flesh and a looking on to Yeshua the Messiah. And that's what the walk will be like. And even when then he comes, we will cry out, the Bible says, who can be saved? We're not going to say, oh, here I am. I'm ready. We're going to say, who on earth can receive him in his glory? He is so wonderful. He is so perfect. He is so beautiful. We won't see ourselves. We'll only see him. And that's what it said on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw no one but Yeshua. We'll see no one but him. We'll look unto him, and he will be our all in all. But if we don't believe he can give us victory over sin, if we don't, if we think that, oh, we're in the flesh, we're human, we're going to continue to fall, then we are going to continue to fall. And we've been denying these promises that he is able to keep you, not just one day, but keep you continually from stumbling, walking with him. And he's able to present you faultless, pleasing before his throne and his glory and his grace at his appearing. And that's the character Enoch had. And if Enoch was able to have that character 5,000 or so years ago, then is there any reason that we can't have it today? If God's spirit was able to empower him and transform him and change him, and God's power and God's spirit is able to transform you and me as we allow him, as we surrender to him, as we give our hearts to him, as we accept our death in the Messiah, as we accept the Holy Spirit into our hearts and minds to live in us and out of us, to give glory and honor to God. And if that's what you would like, then in a moment when we pray, ask God to do that in your life. He's revealed some area in your life where you've been grumbling, complaining, bickering, denying authority, resisting authority, speaking evil of dignitaries. In a moment when we pray, surrender that to the Lord. Give it over to him. The devil's been using you to cause division among the people of God and surrender that. Pray like the disciples, Lord, is it I? Am I the one who would deny you? Am I the one who would 
cause you pain? Am I the one who would turn you over? Lord, show me if there's anything in my heart where I would cause division and heartache to your people. And then secondly, if you've been walking in a form of godliness, maybe for years, praying, reading the Bible, attending services, praying, singing, praising the Lord, but denying the real power thereof. Power of God is not in parting Red Seas. That's easy. The power of God is manifest in changing a life and giving us victory over sin. How many of us who, who, who meet a, a heroin addict who says, I want to stop heroin, will you pray for me? Wouldn't pray, Lord, give him victory over this heroin, right? Or would we say, well, tough luck, that's a, you're in the flesh and you're human, you're just going to be addicted to that the rest of your life, tough luck. Or we'd say, I'll pray for you, God will give you victory over that. If God will give him victory over heroin, won't God give him victory over pride? God will give him victory over alcoholism, won't God give him victory over selfishness? And all the sins of the flesh, yes, he can. And just as he's given you victory over sins in your life in the past, he is able to give you victory over all temptations and sins that Satan throws at you in the future. It's the same pattern. The same way you were forgiven and delivered from sins of the past and other things, whatever it was, outward signs, outward things, that he can also do with the inward Intents of the heart, the motives, the mind, the thoughts, the dreams even, the imaginations, the wanderings of our brain. The devil tries to influence us and get us thinking in wrong paths. God's able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless. And so if you've been listening to the devil's lie, you've been denying his power, that you've been thinking, I'm just in the flesh, I'm going to sin, I'm going to continue to sin, and that's just how it's going to be. And you want to reject that false theology that has permeated so much into Bible teaching, it's horrendous. And accept God's promise, and God's power, in a moment when we pray, ask God to change your mind, change your theology, change your thinking, and grab a hold of his promises. Third, if God is bringing to your mind some people that need building up, that need encouraging, that need to be prayed for, people who are caught in the fire and need to be delivered, God wants to use you to give them a word, to give them some encouragement, to do something in their behalf to help them lead them, intercede on their behalf. Someone that God's calling you to have mercy upon, someone that God's calling you to have compassion on, someone you've been looking down upon or negative towards or angry with. God's calling you to have compassion on them. God's bringing someone's name to your mind or face to your mind. And surrender them to the Lord and present them before the Lord. And pray for them in a moment when we pray. Third, if you want to allow God to transform you and change you. And to use you. Willing to say, Lord, use me. Take this flesh, take this body. Crucify the carnal nature and live in me. Use me for your honor and glory. Let the world see yourself in me, in this body, in this flesh, in these words, in these actions. Lord, take me and use me. Then the gospel will go to the world when they're seeing it lived out. That'll be rejected by the majority, but that's when it'll be seen. Not just in text. Not just in historical stories. But when they see the Holy Spirit lived out in you and me. When they see a people who are not stumbling, who are walking by faith, walking with courage, walking with faith in the Lord and strength in the Lord, confidence in the Lord's promises, not yielding and waffling back and forth, but consistent walking with God. Pleasing God in all their actions, in all their ways. Then God will be able to convict them of their ungodly ways. 
and their ungodly thoughts and their ungodly actions. But when we live like the world, there's nothing to convict. By taking a hold of God's promises, taking God seriously, letting him work in us and through us, that the world may see him in the flesh again, in this flesh, in your flesh, in his temple, his people. And if you're willing to do that, in a moment we pray, say, Lord, use me. Make me your temple. Live in me. And if the Lord is impressing your heart and mind to press together the temple of God with the body of God in unity, in love, in compassion for one another, caring for one another, helping one another, ministering to one another, serving one another in the body of believers, not just individuals here and there, but a temple together, united together. In a moment we pray, ask God to bind you together in him and with his children. If any of those areas apply to you, and maybe God's speaking to you about something else this week, something else from the text we read, then let God do his work. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, ruler of the universe, we praise your name and we thank you for the example of Enoch. We're thankful that through his life and, and his ascension, we have the assurance of the ascension when you come again. Thank you that we have the assurance that you live that there is a heaven above. There are mansions you're preparing for us. There is a new Jerusalem for us to dwell in. Thank you for his example of walking with you and pleasing you. Lord, we want you to do that in our lives as well. Enoch was nothing different than us, born of the flesh. And so, Lord, you can do the same thing in us that you did in him. Crucify this flesh. Remove the evil desires and the carnal desires. Give us eyes to see you. Give us feet to walk in your path. Grab a hold of our hands and walk us through this life. Straight and narrow path. Walk us right into heaven. And Lord, use us in sharing your glory with the world. Use us in uniting together in building up the family of God here on earth, that the world may see you in us and that you might be able to come back for a spotless bride. In Yeshua's holy name, amen. amen.